remember where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has been giving parables, illustrations concerning how to be ready for his return. And so I want to ask you one more time. How are we to be ready? Should we know the dates and the times and the seasons? Yes, as best we can, but we cannot know them definitively. Not even the Son of Man himself, Jesus says, knows. So be careful of those who say they know definitively. Can we say we're in the last days? How can we say that? Where's the biblical warrant for that? Since the resurrection, these are the last days. Do we believe that we're pretty close to the last of the last days? I think so. I think so. I mean, how many of you know that if Judge Kavanaugh doesn't get in, Jesus must be returning? Oh, come on, come on. We look to those things, whether you're for or against him, love him or hate him, he's right or wrong, we look to that as a hope, a hope. Believers, Christ's return is our hope. So let's be careful about the issues of the day, making that day less significant than the natural days of our lives. Amen? And so he says, how to be ready? Be doing the work of God. Be faithful servants. Be loving one another and caring for one another and ministering to one another in the same way that God cares and loves and ministers to us in his incarnate Son, the Son of Man. So we're continuing. And now we come to a particular episode that is recorded in the Gospels, and actually I think probably in John chapter 12 a little more definitively, but Matthew is doing what he's doing. He doesn't give all the information. It doesn't matter. But we come to an episode where Jesus is at the house of Simon the leper, a man apparently who was healed by the Lord Jesus. And you see the story itself is where? What's the background of this? You see a much deeper background in John chapter 12. And the lady comes in and does something extraordinary and unusual, something that many of the people, even the disciples, are like, what in the world is she doing? But there's one issue here that I believe the Lord wants to accentuate above all the other issues. Father, as we go through your word today, minister to us, Father, according to your deep love. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, verses 3 to 5, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas. Now remember what's happening here. Jesus has been proclaiming himself as the Son of Man. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, now, I don't know how, do you have your notes? Is that is this passage in your notes? All right, underline in your Bible, verse 5. But they said, and underline this, not during the feast. 
not during the feast. Again, I say this. We read the Word of God too quickly, too quickly. We're going to arrest him and kill him, but not this week because this is Passover week. Not this week, lest there be an uproar among the people. So we're going to do this, but our timing is next week. You see that? Jesus' withering rebuke, remember his rebuke of all the Jewish leadership, has caused them to decide or actually to precipitate a decision. They had already decided this. To secretly kidnap him after the Passover when the crowds disperse. But remember what Jesus had said in verse 2. Let's go back to verse 2. Jesus had told his disciples concerning what, the, what events are happening and will occur. He says, you know that after two days, underline that, two days, after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. You see, the Pharisees had a plan. We are going to wait until after the Passover is over. And then after the Passover is over and people go home. Because remember, Jerusalem is a very crowded city during this particular festival. Everybody goes home. Mardi Gras is over. And once all the crowds are gone, then we can move in and arrest Jesus and put him to death. We can kidnap him and kill him. That's what we want to do. That's what we're deciding to do. That's what's going to be done. But there's something wrong here because what did Jesus say? He didn't say after the Passover, the, man, the Son of Man will be what? Arrested and crucified. What did he say? In just a couple of days. Just a couple of days. So what do you see here? You see that issue about timing. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Man has his plans. How many of us, and we all should raise our hands on this. You don't have to, but how many of us have plans? How many of us decide tomorrow I'm going to do this and next week and I, when you're going over there and we're going to, I'm going to work here? We all have plans. But every one of our plans must come under and be conformed to the eternal plan of God. You see, we all have plans, but God has an eternal, irrevocable plan for each of our lives. Do you believe that? Yes. And so what does James say? Don't say, I'm going to do this and that, but if the Lord wills, we're going to go such and such, and we're going to do such and such, etc. So let's begin to be a people who, in a very much larger way, when we talk about what we are going to do, we couch it, not only in our own minds, but even verbally to ourselves and to others, if the Lord permits, or if it's God's will. Amen? We're too much, and I know I am too, deciding and stating what we are going to do apart from the will of God. And so, we want to walk in God's plan. Now, this means this, that the timing 
and the events of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, as with all of his life, had been God's plan before the foundation of the world. What we're watching here, as in every aspect of Jesus' life, but sometimes this becomes more accentuated in our hearts and our minds because we see something here that, oh, look what's happening. But everything about Jesus' life is according to God's eternal plan. Nothing happens in this man's life that has not already been planned. And so what we have in the man Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, is a walking out, a fulfilling of an eternal plan that was decreed according to the character of God. Revelation 13, 8, the lamb that was slain when? Before the creation of the world. Acts 2, 23, remember Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, and he is out there telling them what happened at the crucifixion. And in verse 23, he says this, this Jesus, this man, delivered up according to the definite, your Bible may say predetermined. I like the word predetermined. Definite determined beforehand, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So what we are seeing here is absolutely everything according to the will of God. Therefore, the plans of the high priest, contrary to the plans of God, have to conform to God's eternal plan. Correct? They have to conform. So before continuing with the events of Jesus' arrest, Jesus, Matthew is going to insert a pericope. Yeah, a pericope is a little kind of a story to contrast the evil plans of the elders with the devotion of Mary. So we see this. The elders were going to kill him. We're going to kill him. And then in the next several verses, we're going to see a drastically opposite attitude about Jesus. And one of the things we need to make sure we see here, although I'm not going to talk about it, is what Jesus talks about. And I, I think, I forgot, I think, it's Matthew, I think it's John 15. The world hates me. And because the world hates me, the world will also hate you. And there will be those in the world who love me, and because they love me, they will also love you. So what does that say to the believer? It says to the believer that certainly does not mean that we are to reciprocally hate the world. You hate me, therefore I'm going to hate you. But we do have to have an understanding of whose people we are what kind of a people we are to be in this world, and what kind of reception we are to expect from a world if we are living, the, we are the living image of God in Christ clearly enough for the world to discern these people are not just another group of religious people, but they are genuinely the people of God. And to the to the extent that the world sees us and sees Christ in us alive and well, the world is going to react antagonistically against not us, but against Christ in us. Correct? It's going to happen. And this is why Jesus says, woe unto you when everybody thinks you just fine and nice. 
And so there is a place where we need to be careful how we live before the world for the sake of clarity of testimony of Christ. But there is also a place where we're not attempting to curry favor. Do you know what curry favor means? What does that mean? Trying to win them and be nice to them and hope you like me. Because if I can get people to like me, if I can get people to accept me and be comfortable with me, then they'll be nice with Jesus. No. We're not supposed to be a bunch of mean snakes. But at the same time, we're not supposed to be trying to win the testimony, uh, promote the testimony of Christ to win their hearts through fleshly activities of trying to do things for people. Now, does that mean that I should not invite someone over to my house who doesn't know Christ and give them a nice dinner for the purpose of witnessing? No, I should do that if I am being led by the Holy Spirit. But I shouldn't do that thinking that doing that will prepare their hearts to hear God because the Holy Spirit prepares the heart. And so, what about this thing about Mary and her devotion? Verses 6 and 7. You get a picture of the hatred of the world, and now you get a picture of the love of God's people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany, this was what I was talking about in the beginning, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flack of expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as, she reclined, as, he, as he reclined at the table. Now, you can imagine, we're all sitting around eating dinner. Now, they didn't have chairs and things like that. They kind of have these sofas-looking things. They kind of lull a guy around, you know, kind of whatever. So all these guys are at a table. Do you notice what I just said? All these what? All these guys are at a table. All these men are at a table. There are no women at the table with them, I don't think. Maybe there would be. Would be. Typically, they wouldn't. And so, they're having a nice meal. And then all of a sudden, Mary comes in. Remember Mary? And, and John 11 is one I meant to say. John 11. Remember Mary? She is the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. Remember that, Mary? the resurrection of Lazarus, a raising of Lazarus, rather. So, she comes in, and all of a sudden, she walks up to Jesus, and she takes a bottle of perfume and pours it all over him. Now, why Jesus didn't get up and say, what in the world are you doing to me? This is a new outfit. I just put this on. What is happening? You've ruined my hair today. What, we have thought, what would we have thought about such a woman? And, and this ointment is very, very expensive, maybe several thousand dollars worth of perfumed ointment. What is she doing? A woman enters the house of Simon the leper and anoints Jesus with very expensive perfume. This generosity is an act of unconstrained love and devotion to Jesus. Do we see that? Do we see that? What is motivating her heart? She has been touched. Her heart, her mind, her soul, her feelings, her emotions, her hopes, her desires, etc., etc., have been deeply touched by this man. 
And as a consequence of that, her reaction, if you would, or her response, if you would, is to pour out her heart's affection through this gift. As she has received so much, she now is compelled, if you would, by her own feelings and emotions to pour back according to how she has received. Now, we're not going to do this today, but you do, I think, see something of the illustration of giving. You know, giving, tithing. I don't know who gives what in this room. I can look it up if I want to. All the elders have the ability to take all the giving records and look at them personally. I have that right. So I can open the books and see what Warren gives. I can open the book and see what Jerry gives. I can open the books and see what any of you give. I can do that. But the point is this. Is our giving saying something about the depth and the power of our devotion to this man? How is our giving reflective, first, of his devotion to me and my receiving that devotion and responding with devotion? If you're not this morning giving the way we see the Word telling us to give, find out in your heart before God, why not? You see, it's not, I don't want you to, I don't want your money, Gwen. Well, maybe I do. I, I don't want your money, uh, Brenda. We're not looking for your money. Paul says this in St. Corinthians. We're looking for the blessing of God to be upon your life in a greater way. Oh, wait a minute. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. We are blessed. We're blessed in Christ. But those blessings accrue to us and flow to us and through us according to our devotion to Christ. Did you hear me? Did you just hear what I said? They flow through me. They're in me, but they're activated, and I, are exp I am experiencing them, and I am, if you would, giving them forth in my life according to my devotion to Christ. One day we'll just have to make sure we see that our obedience and our work and our deeds are absolutely equally related to his blessings in our lives and to the way God loves us. Mm, that's another day. So what moved her to such extravagant mercy, I mean, uh, action? She was moved by the mercy of God upon her and her family. She has been moved by the mercy of God upon her and her family. Listen. John 11, verse 2, she's Mary. Then John 11, 3 through 6, the sisters, that's Martha and Mary, remember, sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Now, look at verse 5. Just look at verse 5 a moment and think about this. 
if this isn't odd. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, period. Now, don't, don't go any further. Don't go any further. Just read verse 5. Stop. Now, if you were writing this and if you were creating a myth or a story about this man, Jesus, what would you have said? Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Therefore, Jesus did what? He got up and did what? And he got down to Bethany, right? He's ill, AJ. Oh, we're going on. Do you see? That's how humanity would have written it. But you must remember God's timing, not the urgency of humanity and the need of people is not the governing factor. The governing factor is always God's will as he put, put as he accomplishes it in his timing and his way, his method. Correct? Humanity's need is never the priority. It's God's will, God's glory, as he brings it forth within the context of his own decree and timing. He controls this. So Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Therefore, he sat down and he stayed there for a few more days. Now, does that make sense? Really, does it make sense? We just get a call. Your daddy's in the hospital. He's dying. You call the pastor. Pastor Peter, will you come pray? So what do you expect? I'm getting over there, as they say. I'm getting over there. And for three days later, I'll come sauntering in. What is all that about? Dad died. What are you doing here now? Why didn't you come when I called you, right? Jesus loved them, therefore he did not come when they beckoned him, but he went when God released him. There's, this is so much right here. We could stay in this all day, but we won't do it. <clears throat> so he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Sit and ponder and think and listen to God over that verse concerning the activities and the decisions and the timings, etc., of our own lives. It's important to see this. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus has already died. He's been in the tomb four days. Now, I said... Mary was touched by God's mercy. Now, if we stop at verse 17, Elaine, where is the mercy of God here? We don't see it, do we? Do you see verse, in, by verse 17, do you see the mercy of God in this issue? Hemi, do you see it? We don't see it. Lazarus is what? He's dead. He's dead. Where's God's mercy? Why didn't you get here? Mercy, why didn't you get here? You gave Billy mercy. What about me? Eddie, you've received mercy. I didn't. Why not me? Even David, come on in, David, thank you. Receive mercy. But what, 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 why don't I receive mercy? When am I going to receive mercy? Do we hear ourselves in this? 
Do any of you ever ask these kinds of questions? Yes or no? Others, but why not me? Because, again, we're looking at the lives of others and ourselves within the context of our own limited understanding, which is faulty 99% of the time. And we have a context or a definition of what mercy is for me, which may be contrary to what genuine godly mercy is, because God's love produces God's mercy. God's mercy is a function of his love. And when he is merciful to us, that is the activity of his love. And when we are not receiving that kind of mercy, he's withholding it, if you would, because of his love for us. Ooh, don't you, don't you like it? That bothers me. Does it bother any of you? That bothers me. How can it be? Because I make myself too much the center of it all. I am a child of God, therefore God must. <laughs> Verses 32, 36, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and saying, oh, Lord, can, listen, listen to the lament, the lament, the brokenhearted, the confusion, maybe the frustration, maybe the loss of hope. What about my faith in who you are? Listen to what she's saying. Just don't read these words and go ahead. There's so much in these words. If, if only you what? Had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that whatever you ask God, he's going to do it. Do you hear the pathos in this, the deep sorrow, even the fear perhaps? Jody, do you hear her wrestling with her own who are you-ness? Have you ever wrestled with who are you, God, when there are certain things going on in your life? Hasn't that been a wrestling in you? Hasn't it? Yes. It's the wrestling of faith, and it's a good wrestling. Don't deny it. Don't refuse it, and don't call it sin. It's a good wrestling. It's the same kind of wrestling we see at Jabok. You'll have to go figure that one out. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was what? Deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And she said, Lord, come and see. And as they walked to the tomb, Jesus wept. Now, why did he weep? Darlene, he knows what he's going to do. You see, we, we, this is who we are. Okay, Sue, you've just gotten terrible news. Somebody whom you love has died. And so we're at the funeral. And someone comes in, and you're weeping and you're upset. And here's how they handle you. Sue, don't be, don't be weeping. Don't be weeping because your brother is in heaven. So don't be weeping. Your brother's in heaven. It's okay. Cheer up. 
be of good cheer. Be careful, believers. This is not God. This is not God. God himself in the flesh stands there, and he weeps with them and for them. He doesn't say, hey, D, man, put your tears away, sister. We're going up to that tomb, and we're bringing that boy out of the tomb. So don't weep because I'm here, and I'm the Lord of glory, and be filled with joy and be filled with faith. Because I'm going to raise him from the dead. He doesn't do that, does he? Did I misread the text? Wendy, did you see that in the text? No. He did what? What did he do? He wept. He wept. This is God the Father experiencing the plight the captivity, the weakness, the inability, the terrible condition under which his people are suffering and he's experiencing it through his son, the Son of Man. Do you get that? God the Father is experiencing it in the Son. He's weeping. I've seen this happen. A great tragedy. Or whatever. And I've seen believers, if you would, with a good heart, wanting to do what? Console and give hope and whatever. And almost to the place of rebuking how you feel. Tammy, when your mother died, don't feel that way. She's with God. You don't have to feel that way. Be happy. The problem with that is it denies the way God has created us because we need to be in very close contact with our very deep feelings. Otherwise, we are saying that we're very differently constituted then God has constituted us. It is appropriate for believers whose loved one, let's say, has gone on into heaven, using that example, to be brokenhearted. And so at funerals, and I got this from Mike Indes years ago, I try to say that every time, with one eye, tears of sadness, but then mingle them with tears of hope and joy. You see, Paul says we don't grieve like those of the world unbelieving. Don't grieve like them. Grieve with godly grief. What is godly grief, Murphy? Tears in the face of resurrection. And when she, I think, sees this man, hmm, who has walked on water, who has healed blinded eyes, who has stopped storms, this mighty man, when he, she sees him crying, she realizes 
He understands me. He understands what I'm going through. And her heart is being woven, woven into the heart of Jesus. Do you hear this? Are you with me today? Heart of Jesus. Her heart is being woven in. Believers, as we minister and relate to one another in horrible circumstances, whatever the circumstance is, let us be a people that first, first, and I have to learn this continually, first, may I repeat that word, Diana? First, allow God to use us in such a way that the deep feelings and emotions and heartache and tragedy, et cetera, et cetera, that is going on in the life of this person. Let us be used by God so in such a way that that heart is being knitted into, if you would, woven into, wooed into the loving care of God's heart. Amen? I'm not going to make this about a marriage thing. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Let me give you an illustration of marriage. I've, I've said no three times in my mind as I'm talking. So I'm, this time I'm going to say yes to what I think. I think I've done a few days of counseling in my day. Many of you in here have been in my office. I know things about many of you that others don't know. So don't push me. <laughs> so, oh, and I have a major fault. I love gossiping. Ah, why didn't you tell me that before I came into the office, right? Andy, did you know that? So husbands and wives and a wife has the need of her husband's help to fix things. Yes. Yes. The husband has a need by creation to be a fixer of things. And so there's something going on, and the wife asks the husband to tell, share something with the husband. So the husband hears these things, one, two, three, four. Okay, I, I got the answer. There it is, bump, bump. So I give Gene the answer. Well, what you should do is when your mom is feeling like this, her mother died in October 8th, 14. Remember, when your mom is doing this, this and that, and we need to do that. And if, when I responded that way, not in that tone, you understand, but when I responded that way, how did you feel? You were upset. All I'm trying to do is help my wife. I'm giving her correct godly wisdom, but what I fail to do is first be used by God to allow her heart to be wooed and won into the goodness of God first so that when she experiences that, then the activity of one, two, three can be walked out by her. Can you say amen? And my heart, my wife's heart is not bound. Or, or I'm not winning my wife's heart by giving her just a bunch of steps to go through, even though these steps are correct. Linda, these are actual three things that she needs to do. She really does. 
Those of you who know Jean know she needs a whole lot more than just three. But okay, go ahead. You were waiting for something. I gave it to you. Okay, so we can go on. But, but, look, look, look. What she needs most from me is what we need most from God. I don't need first and foremost a bunch of things to do. I first and foremost need to have my heart knitted to God. I need to be touched by God. Is this what he does? Isn't this what he does? Correct? He first woos you and wins you and, you know, with his love. He assures you. He calms you. He does all of that first. Then he instructs. Then he instructs. Men need to learn this. Hey, guys, we need to learn. This is a major lesson <clears throat> that men struggle with. So what happened? Verse 43, Lazarus, come forth. <clears throat> In the last five minutes, let me go through this quickly. I want you to take your pen out. And right at the top of your, your notepad right there, whatever you have, your notes. Without looking at anything, whatever, just think. If I were to ask you, what is the worst sin as a Christian? What is the worst sin that you can commit? Go ahead, write it down right now. You have it, you have it in your mind. What's the worst thing you can do? If I gave you a list of all kind of bad things, what would be the worst? Okay, you have it written. Now, don't say anything. Don't be talking. No cheating. Someone's cheating. <laughs> Mercy. Mercy. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. You're by nature children of wrath like the rest. You remember all that? Do you remember that? Paul tells us our original condition, lost. Then in verse 4, what does he say? But God, being rich in Mercy. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, what was winning Mary was the love of God for her as expressed in his mercy. He took pity upon her pitiless, her plight, rather. He takes pity on our plight. We're caught. We're slaves. We're drowning. We're captured people outside of Christ. We have no hope. We can't get out. We're dead people apart from Christ. And so the love of God is extended to the world because of mercy. He takes pity upon our plight. And that pity always, when it's God-driven love, pity, a mercy, it always responds in compassion. 
compassion being that activity that alleviates the problem in some way. Are you with me on this? That ministers into the problem in such a way that the person or people in that plight can begin to experience the presence and power of God the way they need to, not necessarily the way they want to. Can we get the difference? Need according to God's goodwill and wisdom about what we really need. And it's the mercy of God that she experienced in that grave site when Jesus, in compassion, mercy upon her, producing compassion, and the compassion says, Lazarus, come forth. That's compassion. That's compassion. Romans 2, 4, don't you know that it is the goodness or the compassion, the kindness, Galatians 5, to 23, the fruit of the Spirit, that leads to repentance. So I ask you this, and I'm skipping a lot of notes. It's okay. I think you get the idea today. What is the worst sin? Do you have Romans at the end of your notes? Okay. Read this with me. Romans chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. Whoops, wait. I'm, 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 I'm reading the wrong thing. I knew that wasn't right. Romans 28 to 32. Paul at the end is telling us all these terrible things about the unbelievers, the base mind given over to impurity. Do you remember all that? And here, here he, he, he gives a, a list of descending sins. Listen to this. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness. Okay, what does that look like? Wickedness, greed, evil full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, <clears throat> malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and if your Bible doesn't say, which many of them don't anymore, it's a shame, unmerciful. It's taken from the word mercy. It's unmerciful. That's the word it should be. Why? The place where humanity is the furthest from God is being without mercy. Why? Because God is the God of all mercy. And believers, we have to be very careful. We look at one another. We relate to one another. We live with one another. We walk with one another. We associate with one another. We watch one another. And too often when something happens and someone does or says whatever, mercy in us begins to shrivel up. And rather than attending to that person's need as expressed in the anger, the slander, the attack, the whatever, Rather than attending to that need in mercy, we withdraw any mercy that God would use us to give to that person, and we become at that moment unmerciful. This is a terrible place to be. How many of you, of course, you may have seen it, you may have, 
did any of you put unmerciful at your list of the descending sins? Wouldn't we think homosexuality? That's it, Billy. Murder. Ah, oh, that's it. And all these others, those are it. What, is, what does the apostle say being led by the Spirit? Warren, what does he say? Unmerciful. Now, I, this hits me. Does it hit any of you? Any of you? Unmerciful. So let's make sure today we are asking and pursuing God to use us as His vessels of mercy to one another in Christ and His vessels of mercy to the world so that His compassion through us reaches into their lives with the gospel because the gospel is the activity of bringing the mercy of God to us. Mercy and, and grace, by the way, are two different terms. Mercy is the activity of God that leads to the alleviation of issues, remember, our salvation. And grace is the gift of God giving us that activity or that work of God in saving us, giving it to us. Mercy and grace are two different words. We, they go together, but they're two different things of God. Mercy is the activity of God alleviating. Grace is the activity of God giving it to us as a gift. See you next week.